Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 6. Last week, I wrapped up at the end of Exodus Chapter 20 with the 10 or so commandments. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm summarizing Exodus chapters 21 through 28, working my way through many of the laws given by God, as well as His instructions on worship. So let's get started. Chapter 21 continues the laws that God commanded Moses to set in place for the Israelites. Verses 2 through 11 concern the treatment of Hebrew slaves by their Hebrew owners. And the concept of slavery presented here is a bit different than what we commonly think of as slavery in our society. For men, it lasted six years, and they were freed in the seventh. Well, except if he married and had kids while in servitude, then it may last longer. And the curious among you may be asking how an Israelite would come to be enslaved by a fellow Israelite. I'll cover that and their treatment of domestic and foreign slaves in more depth in the future. The middle third of the chapter establishes laws concerning violence. We learn of the penalties for murder, both premeditated and accidental, and see the establishment of the concept of cities of refuge that I have previously covered. We are also told that striking or cursing your parent is subject to the death penalty. And that's one way to keep your days short on this earth. Kidnapping receives the same penalty. Then, there are differing penalties for assault and battery depending on who assaults whom and how badly the person is injured. As a note, verse 24 is where you can find an eye for an eye right between a life for a life and a tooth for a tooth. The chapter ends with laws concerning property such as the punishment if a person's ox gores another person to death, or what to do if another person's donkey falls into a hole that you dug. And, like so many of these laws, they seem odd to us through our modern lens. But then again, I'll use the same caveat that I use concerning the crazy warning labels we have on our products, such as the bag of peanuts that warns the buyer that the bag may contain nuts. These laws and those warnings are there because something really happened. Back in the text, almost the entirety of the second half of the chapter concerns rampaging oxen. It must have been a real problem. Which brings me to chapter 22. The first half of the chapter concerns the restitution to be paid for property crimes. And it is here that we are told how a Hebrew could end up in bondage. From the text. When someone steals an ox or a sheep, and slaughters it, or sells it, the thief shall pay five oxen for an ox, and four sheep for a sheep. The thief shall make restitution, but if unable to do so, shall be sold for the theft. Breaking and entering, destroying crops, possession of stolen property, and the destruction of rental property is covered. Remember when I said there were over 600 laws in the Old Testament? Well, it gets pretty detailed, and some are really curious. The second half of the chapter concerns social and religious laws. Premarital relations, female sorcerers, sacrificing to false gods, and the treatment of resident aliens. 
Then there is a paragraph on banking relations. Specifically, the text reads, If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. If you take your neighbor's cloak and pawn, you shall restore it before the sun goes down, for it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as cover. And what else shall that person sleep? And if your neighbor cries out to me, I will listen, for I am compassionate. End quote. Verse 28 was probably enacted due to the way the people had been treating Moses, as it forbids the people from cursing their leaders. The end of the chapter reiterates the sacrifices to be made to God. Which brings me to chapter 23. The chapter begins with general rules concerning justice. Rules such as, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked to act as a malicious witness. You shall not follow a majority in wrongdoing. When you bear witness in a lawsuit, you shall not side with the majority so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to the poor in a lawsuit." End quote. All good and certainly applicable even in today's modern world. But then we're brought back to the rules about donkeys and oxen. But even with those, it's not too much of a stretch to apply these seemingly ancient rules to our society. The middle part of the chapter concerns rules about the Sabbath and what was known as a sabbatical year. You may have heard of someone who takes a sabbatical, but this is different. The text reads, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow so that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the wild animals may eat. You shall do the same with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Then we are reminded of the somewhat simple rules concerning resting on the Sabbath. A bit of the text then explains three mandated festivals. Once again, quoting, Three times in the year you shall hold a festival for me. You shall observe the festival of unleavened bread, as I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. No one shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall observe the festival of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall observe the festival of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my festival remain until morning. The choicest of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk." End quote. And a few notes. A kid, remember, is a baby goat. Also, the festival of the ingathering, known as the Sukkot, is celebrated on the 15th day of the 7th month in the Jewish calendar, usually sometime in September or October. I'll cover these festivals in more detail in the future. Chapter 23 ends with a rather lengthy address by God concerning the future of the Israelites in Canaan. He told Moses, I am going to send an angel in front of you 
to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Be attentive to him and listen to his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you listen attentively to his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. When my angel goes in front of you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods or worship them or follow their practices, but you shall utterly demolish them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall worship the Lord your God, and I will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. No one shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror in front of you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send pestilence in front of you. Stepping out of the text for a second. The Hebrew word here that's translated to pestilence can also be translated to the word hornets as in wasps. I'm not certain which would be worse. Back to the text. And I will send the pestilence in front of you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, or the land will become desolate and the wild animals would multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. I will set your borders from the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will hand over to you the inhabitants of the land, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not live in your land, or they will make sin against you. For if you worship their gods, it will surely be a snare to you." End quote. So God promises the Israelites that in time, he will drive the people currently inhabiting Canaan out and make the land ready for their occupation. And with that, the chapter ends. In chapter 24, Moses relays to the people all that God has said. He then writes them down for prosperity, forming a text that is sometimes, well, at least in the three versions I use, it is referred to as the Book of the Covenant, and writing down all that God said was probably a great idea, considering that up until this point, the people seemed to have a short memory and would quickly turn on him when the going got rough. He then makes an altar and he, assisted by others, makes offerings and sacrifices. He then took the Book of the Covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, See the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. End quote. The chapter wraps up with a few of the men of Israel visiting God on the mountain. Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. 
God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also they beheld God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. End quote. Moses, and probably Joshua, stayed on the mountain for forty days and forty nights. During at least some of this time, at least to the nation of Israel at the bottom of the mountain, God appeared as a devouring fire on the mountain top. And with that, the chapter ends. Chapter 25 begins with God providing Moses with a list of acceptable offering items. And while I normally would not quote such a list directly, it does give insight into what was considered valuable at that time. So with that said, from the text, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and gems to be set in the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Most of these should be fairly obvious why they were valuable, but there are a few items I'll cover in the future. Moving along. God then tells Moses that they are to build a sanctuary, and that he will, at some point in the future, provide directions for it as well as the furniture that will be found in it. And then, God provides detailed instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, the one found in the first Indiana Jones movie. And, since the detailed directions are found directly in the text, Spielberg and Lucas did not have to get terribly creative in its design. It had been laid out some three millennium before. The instructions had a few details that I'll cover later, specifically a mercy seat and cherubim. God also tells Moses that the covenant, presumably meaning the book of the covenant, is to be stored in the ark. Finally, God tells Moses the purpose of the ark, saying, You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the covenant that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are on the Ark of the Covenant, I will deliver to you all my commands for the Israelites." End quote. Now please note that the footnotes of the New Revised Standard Version also comment that the phrase mercy seat can be translated as simply the cover, meaning top, lid, etc. God then gives Moses detailed directions for building a table in the tabernacle. Now, in my mind, there's no need to cover the table itself, but God tells Moses that on it he shall set the bread of the presence, and that bread shall always be there. Also on the table will be plates and dishes for incense, flagons, and bowls, with which to pour drink offerings. All of these were to be made of pure gold, probably the gold they took from the Egyptians. Next, Moses is given directions for building a lampstand for the tabernacle, 
And, just like everything else, it too had to be made of pure gold. And in this case, the text tells us that God gives Moses a pattern to follow. And with that, the chapter ends. In chapter 26 are found extremely detailed instructions for building the tabernacle itself. I'll cover the history and the detailed description of that portable building when I circle back to the concepts of the chapter. Fine twisted linen of blue, purple, and crimson, a similar curtain and entrance screen, golden bronze clasp, curtains of goat hair, a frame of acacia wood with silver bases, pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, hooks of gold, bases of bronze, and a leather tent over top of it all, and all of this described in great detail. And after reading God telling Moses of how to intricately build the wooden frame, it should come as no surprise that Jesus was a carpenter. And from whom did he learn to be a carpenter? His father, of course. And, like the lampstand on Sinai, God shows Moses the plan. In my mind, in this case, the architectural drawing for the tabernacle. All of this found in chapter 26. Chapter 27 begins with God telling Moses how to build an altar for burnt offerings, essentially made of acacia wood overlaid with bronze. Once again, Moses was shown the plans for the altar. Next, God tells Moses how to build the court, meaning courtyard, of the tabernacle. All, just like everything else thus far, in great detail. Hangings of linen, pillars with bronze bases, hooks and bands of silver, a gate made of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, along with a length, width, and height, all described in great detail. But in this case, there is no mention that God showed Moses the plan. The last part of chapter 27 describes the oil for the lamp. And we are told that the oil is olive oil. But not only that, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual ordinance to be observed throughout their generations by the Israelites. And you should remember that the next time you use olive oil in your kitchen. Thousands of years ago, Aaron and his sons stood watch throughout the night, every night, keeping the light burning, and simply because God had told them to do it. Olive oil, it's not just for healthy cooking, or Popeye. And with that, we come to chapter 28. First, God names the first priest, and like was alluded to at the end of chapter 27, it's Aaron and four of his sons. Then, we are told of the priest's clothing, specifically a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a checkered tunic, a turban, and a sash, made from gold, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and fine linen. The next section describes the ephod, which is a sleeveless garment worn by the priest. It too was to be made from blue, purple, and crimson yarn, woven into fine linen. The shoulder pieces were to sport engraved onyx stones, all described in intricate detail. Then, we are given over 400 words to describe the breastpiece. Gold, blue, and purple yarn, four rows of stones, Specifically, a row of carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald shall be the first row. 
In the second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a moonstone. In the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. And if you don't recognize some of these, don't lose too much sleep. According to the footnotes, the translators were unsure of them, too. Twelve more stones, each engraved with the name of one of the twelve tribes. Chains and rings of gold, too. And we are told that Aaron is to wear the breastplate. Well, actually, and more specifically, we are told that Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in what is called the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place for a continual remembrance before the Lord. In this, what is called the breastpiece of judgment, was put the Urim and the Thummim, and they should be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the Israelites on his heart before the Lord continually. And, just like in the previous list of stones, no one knows what is meant by the words Urim and Thummim. They may have been stones that we today refer to by a different name. The chapter ends with a description of the priest's other clothes. Once again, blue, purple, and crimson yarn with bells around the lower hem of the robe. So why bells? Well, God told Moses that Aaron shall wear it when he ministers, and that its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he may not die. Also, Moses was told that the priests were to wear a rosette of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. We are told of the tunic to be worn by the priests and even their underwear. All in all, another, well close to 400 words on their garments and adornments. And you may ask why I refer to the word count is to give you an idea of the detail without having to read it entirely. Chapter 28 contains over 1,100 words, and all of them are essentially God's description of what the priest should wear. To put that in perspective, that's about 200 more words than were used to explain the first creation story that occupied all of Genesis chapter 1, as well as the first part of chapter 2. In fact, a good costume designer can take the text and essentially, far so many years, millennium later, sew exactly what God dictated to Moses. And that's probably a good place to end this episode. Like I've done in the summary episodes in Chapter 3 of the podcast, in the future, I'll be going into more depth on the tabernacle, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, onyx, sapphire, and all the other stones, the breastpiece and ephod worn by the priest, the three festivals, and of course, the Ark of the Covenant. Join me next week when I'll restart the summary of Exodus in chapter 29. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a great review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. 
You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. That way you have no trouble finding it in the future. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.